yeah so that uh that's something that uh you know professor uh, usha ramanathan had sort of said and uh, mm. i just wanted to sort of cite her in in bringing that up right uh, yes which again is from the paper that i talked about earlier in the book is that you know we tend to like you know whenever we go to the go to a government office right or we uh, we are trying to you know avail any service from the government or not just government actually even when we are buying a sim card or we are opening a bank account right um even if if we are asked to share some information it could be over whatsapp with an executive of, of a business with which we are mm-hmm. trying to build a relationship maybe because we are uh, you know uh, getting a wifi right like today in the morning i was going to get a, a new wifi connection and the um person on the other end just asked me to share my aadhar information on whatsapp with him on over mm-hmm. as as a picture right and obviously uh, in that scenario i'm not really told that i have other alternatives right so i mean many yeah. people tend to just give in and not really ask uh, okay you know what do do i have an alternative here or what my choices really are because that's sort of been the uh, trajectory over the years as well uh, given that you know given the sort of importance that the bureaucracy has had in this country in uh, since the col- colonial uh, times and i think that mm-hmm. sort of trend has continued and particularly uh percolated in the context of people not really saying no or not really asking questions about whether they have more privacy compatible alternatives in many situations mm. Mm. okay uh, i can't imagine what you must have i mean it's kind of funny to think of him asking you <laughs> the author of a book on privacy for for your you know for your aadhar on whatsapp <laughs> it's kind of comic <laughs> anyway so you know you um, um, you also sh- right at the beginning you know in the introduction also you say and this is another thing that you know when there's so much surveillance the fear of surveillance of being monitored can have a chilling effect on the freedom of speech and expression causing fear in the minds of those who dissent which far from being democratic are features of a totalitarian state so this is something that's increasingly happening right so talk about that yeah sure so uh this uh, sort of argument in the book comes from a concern that was expressed in the supreme court about privacy being a very uh, elitist right that uh, you know mm-hmm. a lot of people in india not being concerned about because the argument from uh, the state was that you know there are more sort of crucial uh, concerns that people have at the moment like people don't have food people don't have uh, access to basic resources um socio economic rights which are which mm-hmm. probably should take priority over something like uh privacy on that sort of uh, scale right uh, but the court the supreme court rejected that argument uh categorically by mm-hmm. and it did so by acknowledging that look like you know uh privacy is sort of an instrument also to achieve to ensure that the state is accountable and unless the state is accountable you can't really guarantee that uh you know any of these other rights are protected as well right and uh, mm. that they sort of quoted uh, amartya sen's work development as freedom where he talks about how uh you know civil liberties right it uh, such as uh, freedom of speech are uh, very very important and have in the absence of which many other many regimes uh, in different colonies uh, mm. were not accountable at all and you had famines and famines in those 
uh, areas because yes. the people there weren't able to hold the state accountable. And the reason I sort of bring it up at the outset is because you know there are many people who say you know in the middle of a pandemic why do we care about privacy or you know but don't we have like this other overarching concern and and sort of changing the scales back to. uh a more a healthy debate is something i found uh, very important to lay out at the outset hmm. but why is it either or i mean because you've just like in a, in in times of crises like you know pandemics or famines it's more important uh, i would think right because that's when a guard is down as a people definitely and and uh, you know i talk about specific examples of how you know there were crackdowns on hospitals uh yes. you know on being able to talk about uh, the fact that there were there were shortages of oxygen during uh, the pandemic yes i mean this was of course uh not specifically in the context of privacy but it was trying to make the argument that uh like you know if people are not feeling safe to talk about things in private they will not talk and as a result of which you will not have the ability to hold the state accountable is definitely not a dichotomy like you pointed out it's uh yes. very clearly a right that is if not equally then uh continues to remain very important in uh, these situations of crisis as well and it, it's then when we need to maybe um think about how we can balance uh privacy with the competing interests such as let's say um someone's right to food or another concern in that given context but i think uh it doesn't just vanish as a concern in those situations mm-hmm. and that's something i was trying to talk about when i brought this up in the book Hmm. Okay now in your book you you look at both you know the government's invasion of uh, citizens privacy as well as you know corporate invasions of it right in terms of uh, uh, you know corporate entities having access to our information and data and the government so these are the two uh, sort of sides from which the individuals data is being i don't know sucked sucked out or, you know leached so let's talk about that yeah so um as you um, must be aware uh, privacy is a fundamental right under the indian constitution yes. therefore it's as a fundamental right primarily exercisable against the state which is the government mm. but yes. having said that the interesting thing about privacy is that many a times in fact most of the times corporations play a considerable role in deciding the extent of privacy that we exercise right when we communicate mm. over the internet or over our phones uh private corporations like telecom companies which are providing us you know m- mobile connections and uh, you know internet connections are or social media platforms which become our media me- medium media of communicating online play a very mm. significant role in uh, the extent of privacy we exercise but hmm. but in order but again the concerns of course there are overlaps in the concerns that we have from the state as well as uh, private corporations are to to an extent different but again there hmm. are certain and control is sort of the overarching theme right yes control your ability to trust either with your information but there is also hmm. this uh, and also hold both of them accountable uh, to an extent but uh, there's also this sort of distinct concern that you have from the state which is your relationship of power with the state right yes uh, yes needed to come out very clearly and be addressed separately in the book and i realized that even though there are overlaps they need to be talked about di- di- distinctly right because your your concern with the state is often 
a certain kind of surveillance a certain kind of social control whereas your concern with corporations is also control but a different kind of control which may yes. lead to monetization of your information more than uh, you know like specific ways in which you can dissent against the state right so yes yes in order to have a very streamlined discussion on both these aspects i thought it would be appropriate to divide the book into two parts and talk about state surveillance specifically and how we can sort of like create checks and balances around it in the first part and then on the second part specifically talk about how we can create uh, relationships of trust with platforms that collect our information regularly because uh, let's be honest we all need to use them but at the same time yes. we need to be able to um, create certain safeguards around our information so that it's not taken all for a toss Hmm. Hmm. Now, coming to the state, I mean, it's more like a 1980, and you've mentioned it in the book as well. A 1984 George Wells 1984 kind of scenario, mm-hmm. you know, where where um, you know, with all the cameras and constant, and like you've mentioned, Delhi is one of the most uh, uh, one of the cities with the highest uh, concentration of. Uh, cameras on the streets right and we are being and then comes hyderabad i suppose so uh, these these you know this sort of thing when you're constantly under surveillance and the kind of effect that it has in a democracy mm-hmm. you know talk about let's talk about that and definitely what so you know um i i talk about how uh, you know there are the presence of cctvs in uh, some of our cities is increasingly becoming ubiquitous of course uh, but i sort of build that onwards to say that look of course you may need to have cctvs in many instances where you need yes. to ensure let's say public safety you want to go back and investigate a crime and all of that mm-hmm. right? but the question mm-hmm. becomes more about the extent and the controls in place to preserving our information in those instances in addition to what additionally is being added tech technologically to uh, worsen the extent of surveillance that the state can exercise and i sort of mm. want to connect that to the idea of how you know uh, there are specific uh, facial recognition systems uh, that have yes. been in fact used by uh, you know by law enforcement in uh, various on in various instances mm. it's sort of these so so the the cctvs are not may not in itself be a problem but then when you're combining the footages of multiple cctvs and then being able to you know trace a person and track them track each and every movement of them right those potentialities mm. are what really become a problem and we're not just talking in abstract terms now um if you um i mean uh, in in uh, chapter 2 of the book i talk specifically about uh, how during the protests against the citizenship amendment act as well as uh, you know uh d- during uh, the farmer protests that that have been yes. reported instances of use of facial recognition right so yes it is then when you are seeing a very tangible sort of use case of uh these cctvs becoming a means to a larger sort of surveillance uh potentiality and that is what i was uh, trying to sort of uh, concern the readers with mm. Mm. to sort of add to that i'm sorry but i think yeah. uh, you know like what we see a little bit further down the road is how things are in china right which is yes. uh, the fact that you have uh, very specific ways of surveilling minorities and you also have 
sort of like specific way of disciplining and controlling populations that that is already being implemented in the interest of stability right and that mm. is something which uh of course like stability is important in a in a state but you also need to be able to protest about things so that you can bring change which is positive mm. so i think mm. that ties up with why all of this needs to be talked about and uh, uh i mean addressed essentially yeah Hmm. Yeah, but as you mentioned, you know, China is not a democracy. I mean, you know, it it, it is it's a totalitarian state. So, and and we as a we are a, a democracy. So, if we go down this road of excessive surveillance, we cease to be that, right? Because Absolutely. if public protests are going to be, uh, you know. if drones are going to be a feature of public protests you know where you capture uh, you know the faces of protesters going forward few people will protest and then we'll start not being democratic right yeah, because you see people wearing scarves and uh, you know different uh, accessories to prevent themselves from being captured and uh, you know now you have uh, businesses offering facial recognition systems that can identify you irrespective of whether you're wearing uh, something to cover yes yes so i yes. Think, like there, there there are also uh, instances in other parts of the world where uh, you, you have gate recognition or your, the ability of the state to monitor your unique movements or strides and i think all of this is sort of creating a worry of excessive ability to track each and every movement of yours and to sort of retrospectively punish you for participating in a certain a uh, social or political movement and that is really the concern that we are uh, that, that that we are worried about and like you said of course we are unlike china uh, we we would like to sort of like you know stick to our democratic values and be able to have uh, free dissent in uh, to the to the extent that it's within our constitutional uh, framework and for, for for us to be able to do that we need to have our basic rights in place checks and balances around how these systems are used who has access to the underlying information and uh, under what circumstances such use can be implemented and whether you require a court's order to uh, use a facial recognition given system so the book tries to provide constructive suggestions in terms of uh, like you know when if at all you can use these systems to begin with hmm okay now coming to things like you know you've mentioned that, you've delved into that as well you know how uh, in many cases we've seen how you know the police kind of just takes uh, uh, takes phones from uh, you know people who've been detained and looks at their whatsapp and uh, you know and that's publicized in the media and and it creates a you know a whole effect by itself so let's talk about that new about how about law enforcement and uh, you know devices personal devices and their access to it because it seems quite you know as though it's not not a problem at all mm-hmm. most definitely so i i uh, i specifically dedicated a part of the book to uh, you know the procedure followed by law enforcement when they're carrying out investigations uh, because mm. that has been uh, an overarching concern uh, and how it affects privacy generally uh and that mm-hmm. has also been a sort of root of the concern for privacy to begin with so mm-hmm. i mean um, there have been instances that where you know houses of 
academicians, lawyers and activists have been, you know, searched and seized without obtaining a warrant from a court, you know, because it's a yes. authority that is deciding that they want to uh, carry out an investigation, which is also interested in carrying it out. So there's a clear sort of conflict of interest in that situation, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, to, I mean, uh, uh, of course, like you need some, the state needs some leeway in making decisions on its own uh, in relation to offenses against the state. But I've also talked about how, like, you know, even under the uh, UAPA, right, the Unlawful uh, yes. Activities Prevention Act, you have uh, very uh, few people actually getting uh, convicted as a result of, you know, arrests and things like that. So, like, the percentages are extremely low. So, mm. you have these, like, extreme forms of investigation into people's, like, privacy and houses, mm. uh, private spaces and houses. And then... Uh, the, we see that the outcome of that investigation is not really yielding any uh, sort of the kind of result that one would hope to find if, if the investigation were in fact uh, successful in, in that sense, right? So, yeah. uh, so what, what the, the cost that we are paying in terms of privacy is huge. And um, of course, uh, you can't tie down the hands of a law enforcement officer when they're carrying out investigation entirely, but there should be certain checks and balances like, you know, like a... Uh, under what circumstances they can carry it out, uh, you know, and uh, how broadly we are to interpret these circumstances and uh, whether you, you need to go back and, and t- like, you know, seek ratification of that decision to investigate someone's house from a court uh, and things like that, which is something that I've talked about. And there's this like overarching and consistent, uh, you know, need for a warrant from a court that I've talked about and how... Yes, system needs to be very, very uh, strong to the extent possible. If not before carrying out the investigation, then definitely after and things like that, which uh, has not happened in many, many instances. And uh, this has led to a lot of uh, fear among um, uh, the academic community as well about what are the things that they can talk about and what are the books that they can keep in their houses and things like that, right? I mean, if, if you begin to worry about what you can read at home, right and then mm. are we really living in a democracy true true yeah so um, um you know and then there are also these people who say that oh if there is no surveillance and if they aren't uh, you know uh, if in public spaces like the capital or important parts of some cities if uh, if there aren't multiple cameras and if streets aren't constantly under surveillance crime uh, uh, you know our crime rates will shoot up and you've mentioned how though chennai and kochi both uh, have the same you know crime rates chennai is much more uh, uh, under surveillance than Kochi and so let's talk about that about how uh, you know there's a mismatch between these two things about uh, the excessive you know surveillance in our cities and crime rates and how then uh, there doesn't seem to be really uh, a di- you know doesn't discourage uh, criminals so why is there you know so what is the point of so much surveillance right yeah exactly so um so of course we don't have very extensively carried out studies to, I mean, that there are like the instance that I've pointed out in the book where, uh, you know, you have one city where, uh, despite having more cameras, you don't necessarily have a lower uh, crime rate. And of course, some people mm-hmm. could say that this may be attributable to various factors, including, uh, you know, just the 
uh, other various other social factors as well, including uh, the population density and things like that. Mm. I, mm. I think that, like, even if you set that concern aside for a minute, right? I think that mm. uh, I think the overarching sort of concern is. To what extent do we really have? Nobody saying that don't have CCTVs in public places at all. We definitely mm. need them in, uh, you know, like places that are likely to be, uh, you know, subject to a sort of attack or, uh, you know, any form of uh, disorder, uh, public disorder. Yes. But at the same mm. time, and, and you may need them there, right? But but in order to, but before making them as ubiquitous as it is now, we need to have some sort of an assessment of uh, what exactly are the needs and uh, what and is it really leading to I, I mean I couldn't I didn't really come across a study that the state has carried out to really assess the deterrent effect of uh, you know like such ubiquitous uh, presence of CCTVs and I think uh, given that we don't really know to what extent that is the case um, it's very difficult to uh, really say for a, for, for a as, as a fact that they have uh, you know, a def- deterrent effect to the extent that we would like, because, um, mm. and, and of course, it's not just about deterrence, as many would say. It, it may also be about um, the idea of going back and investigating an offense. Like there are instances, yes. like you know, th- there are offenses committed, and then people want to go back to the CCTV footage and see what's actually happened, right? But yes. and and that's of course uh, and a very understandable concern. But again, like it's not just a, it, the concern is not the existence of the CCTV itself in many instances. It's, it's that, uh, of course, the overarching ubiquitous presence is a problem. But then mm. the fact that it's in the absence of any con- of the kind of controls that we would like to have around them, right? Uh, yes. Yes. Who, uh, who, who sort of questions of who can access the footage under what circumstances mm. and things like that. So without those controls, these the fact that they're ubiquitous becomes problematic. Yes. And often people say things like, you know, oh, you want women's safety, but you don't want, you don't want surveillance. So what do you say to, you know, uh, things like that? Yeah. So I think, uh, so in the book, I, I sort of talked about how, uh, you know, a lot of women weren't comfortable with the kind of implementation of uh, these uh, of, uh, you know, CCTV is to be able to actually capture the manner in which uh, somebody is distressed, right? Because it, yes. because that the, a lot of women were also concerned with, you know, the extent to which uh, the state could exercise control over uh, women's, uh, you know, autonomy and bodies in this manner. And you don't really know to what extent people, like, you know, that, that there, are, there are also have been instances where, uh, certain law enforcement officials have, you know, uh, used CCTVs to carry out um, sort of like, you know, uh, to be able to track uh, women and, and that women often don't feel very safe with law enforcement as well in many instances, right? So yes. the fact that like law enforcement can have access to be able to tra- trace someone or be able to like, you know, have this much uh, access to like uh, a woman's autonomy is something which is quite problematic. But more importantly, I think there are other underlying sort of like concerns that are leading to these offenses happening in the first place, right? Like social, uh, the fact that we're not really addressing the root of the crime, but we're trying to just you know capture the expression of a 
of of a female person and trying to understand whether they're distressed because we don't really know yes. whether they want to be washed in that moment or not right a lot of women may not yeah. be comfortable with the state having that kind of access to uh their emotions at any given point in time and instead what people may want is other better sort of like you know awareness and education around and, and like you know uh, changing the way in which patriarchy uh, sort of seeps into uh, people's minds from at a, from a very young age right there are long yes. those are of course long uh, they may seem like long, sort of very long uh, drawn processes to change things but those are sort of what the things that will actually create a tangible sort of change right instead of creating such huge sacrifices on our civil liberties like privacy yes yes uh okay so let's also look at you know how uh, uh you know apps and uh, you know social media how our data is compromised there in a different way you know you've brought, you've looked at that as well so and how it's used yeah uh, so i think here it becomes very important to talk about uh the kind of leeway that corporations have uh in collecting information and using it right of course uh mm. we uh, uh many of us want to be able to access a lot of platforms and um not be able to pay for it right like for example yes. uh we don't sort of pay to access facebook but then we pay with i mean of course like the 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 valuation of these uh businesses is not as high as it is because just uh like that is because our value is very very the, our data is very very valuable and yes. uh, i think that's something that many of us don't really uh, realize right and and the reason our data is so valuable is because you have platforms uh you know monetizing our information to not just be able to provide us services but also to a greater extent beginning to affect our behavior towards mm. uh, the kind of purchases that we are making and things like that right so at some level we are beginning to lose agency over how we are uh, operate conducting ourselves or how we are operating because you you go visit a website you see, you see on an e-commerce platform you uh, you sort of go on amazon and then you see this uh, this thing that you want to buy and then a little while later you are on social media and then you are seeing that uh same product being shown to you right without real and then you're yes. just, so you're sort of like in a you are very uh inadvertently being sort of reminded again and again about making those purchases and sort of inundating your senses mm-hmm. in a way that you're not even realizing right uh yeah. otherwise and it's it, it, you 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 without realizing you might be making purchases that you wouldn't have thought about to begin with so and, mm-hmm. and i think that it's not just about purchases it's also about the fact that you're like spending more time on these platforms right there are people who are addicted to these apps because they're being designed to make you get addicted to them yes and, uh, and because obviously that's the only way in which they can monetize uh, themselves right because we're not moving towards a subscription based model so i think mm. the fact that we're losing control over our own uh, sense of time our own sense of like you know how we're Uh, going about spending our money uh, on and the the kind of decisional autonomy that we exercise on these platforms is varying yes yes and you also mentioned when it comes to you know dating you know, dating sites and how they uh, they track your uh, track your information so let's let's look at that i mean it's uh, uh, you know both 
I mean, all that information that that's put out there and how uh, it kind of manipulates a life choice even, right? So, Of course. Uh, so in the book, I specifically talk about this sort of example of uh, Judith, right? Who's a journalist and yes. uh, she downloads Tinder and then uh, she sort of decide, decides one day to like find out about the kind of information that the app has on her. And she gets mm-hmm. 800 pages of information about yes. uh, you know, her likes and uh, things that uh, things like the uh, number of friends that she has on other platforms and, uh, you know, her conversations and probably the app knows her better than she does herself, right? And I think that sort of becomes a a concern, right? I mean, yes. the fact that there's this um, this vast amount of information and like just by itself, if platforms had information, it it may not, I mean, it, it of course may, be, may concern some, but not others. But it's just that obviously like many of these platforms, the fact that we don't have a law in place to sufficiently restrict how these platforms can use this information is what is sort of uh, problematic. And in that respect, I've gone into details as to how our current sort of data protection uh, framework is and what are the things preventing uh, businesses from collecting our information. I've talked about how, uh, you know, to collect personal information generally, except very specific types of information, you don't even require someone's uh, consent, right? Mm. And uh, the fact that there's this degree of leeway that... I mean, uh, my permission is not even required to provide various types of very, very uh, intimate information about myself or, yes. or share it with others, right? Is yes. deeply problematic because I may not want to share that information beyond a certain platform that I'm on and I don't even have control over it uh, given that yes. the law doesn't really prevent uh, you from sharing it anyway. So these are the kinds of things that I've sort of talked about in uh, this context. Hmm. And you also talk about how the the law itself is inadequate when it comes to uh, 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 whole, you know, sort of holding back corporates uh, in this area. So talk about that, you know, Definitely. for Indian laws being inadequate for this. So as I've sort of uh, mentioned in the book, uh, we in India do not have an omnibus data protection law, like the data protection bill, which has been proposed uh, to be enacted, is yet to be uh, sort of enacted by the parliament. And in the absence of a law, like most, uh, you know, other sophisticated jurisdictions that respect the right to privacy, even though uh, privacy is a fundamental right in India, we have very sort of thinly defined rules under the under one of our laws, which is the Information Technology Act, to regulate how personal information is collected. And, yes. uh, you know, personal information, which is defined very broadly to include information which directly or indirectly identifies you, which could be, your, you know, uh, it could be your PAN card, it could be information, uh, it could be, uh, you know, very uh, specific types of se- uh, sensitive information like your caste, etc. Or it could be, you know, it could identify your religion are not considered sensitive information, right? Yes. So, uh, yes. But these are the things that become the basis of discriminating against you, denying people loans, and also this, this is also something that I've talked about, right? Yes. So the fact that these sensitive, these intimate, or uh, you know, very very personal types of information are not defined to in, uh, within the definition of sensitive information, and you have very very few categories of information which are considered uh, sensitive information. Uh, you 
and and most of the obligations under existing law right which uh, i've which i've sort of defined as the privacy rules in the book apply only in relation to these specific categories of information like financial information which again is also defined very narrowly uh is what becomes problematic because then you have all these this other like this these huge swaths of information about you which do not fall within these narrowly defined categories all of which can be collected without complying with with a set of obligations around uh data protection under existing law so um in the absence of and this is something very inconsistent with um how you know things are in europe for instance with where yes, you yes. have like the general data protection regulation which is an overarching regulatory framework which has been implemented specifically by uh, various nations and um you don't have many of those protections under existing law and until we have a data protection we don't even know what form that bill will take in its final uh, sense when it's actually enacted but until we have that we're very behind and we really need to keep like keep up Hmm. when 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 do you, and you mention also that the lack of these uh, protections is affecting india's uh, uh, competitiveness in many ways right uh definitely so uh india I, i've talked about in the book about how uh india has this india is 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 this outsourcing hub to which information is outsourced by companies from across the globe right we uh, yes. uh and, and because we provide a range of it services right and that's sort of yes. something that we are proud of right but then there's this emanating concern now with, mm. from businesses that are let's say in uh, europe right that they're actually sending us data of, of uh, european citizens that their data is not safe in india and yes. this is this concern is arising from requirements in their law right in european law which where they they need to only send data of european citizens to countries that ensure an adequate level of protection right mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. in order to ha- have that sense of adequacy you need to be able to have certain uh, safeguards in law like against excessive surveillance and uh, things like that but in the absence of those protections uh, there is this increasing apprehension to send data to india right when they're carrying out mm-hmm. their assessment of adequacy and that's mm-hmm. something i flagged in the book to indicate that look now you're interestingly you uh, you know many try to create critics tend to create this dichotomy between uh, privacy on the one hand and uh, you know our economy on the other to say that look if we if we create uh, very very stringent protections around data protection and uh, things like that you will not have economic growth but now we are seeing the outsourcing industry being affected by uh, laws that are in fact uh bereft of adequate data protection obligations so you have you are almost seeing that privacy and the economy are uh two sides of the same coin and there there's no yes. dichotomy in that sense and i think this is one of the strongest arguments for the government to really consider uh you know and have the incentive to create better safeguards against both excessive surveillance as well as um uh, you know like generally how the rights that people have as in relation to their information because in the absence of those safeguards our industries are also getting affected mm. i think that's the only argument that would actually work i guess with governments because i would hope not but unfortunately <laughs> i may have to agree with you at this point <laughs> 
Okay. Okay. Now, you know, this section also, uh, I found very interesting because a lot of people do say this and I found myself also saying this. So, I mean, I have to admit, you know, when, uh, uh, when all these scandals first broke out, I said, oh, so what? Nobody's interested in my data, whatever data I put out there. You know, there's not, I have nothing to hide. And then you've, you've gone. I mean, I've actually said this. I mean, who wants my data? It's not of any consequence. Mm-hmm. But you kind of looked at that argument. I mean, at that statement that a lot of people made make and you've picked you know why it should not you know it should worry worry somebody and why everybody has something to hide so let's talk about that uh yeah sure um so i think uh what i was trying to say there was that we do not want to turn into a sort of scenario which george orwell orwell sort of describes in his book 1984 right where the government is watching citizens obsessively and uh, requiring everyone to behave in a certain way right and yes any sort of derogation from that sort of social control by the state would be punished in a scenario where like let's imagine a situation where the government has access to all each and everything that we are doing at a given point in time right that does sound yeah. very absurd because then you wouldn't be able to say anything or do anything at all that is not consistent with what the state wants you to do and that and if the more we sort of slide towards the argument that we have nothing to hide we increasingly lead ourselves to a state where we have no essentially no privacy right and yes. of course at the moment it may appear to us as specific use cases as i've talked about right in many other we may not even know because i've talked about how uh, you know uh, under our existing surveillance laws uh there are specific confidentiality restrictions preventing mm-hmm. you from being even informed that you are at any point in time that you're under surveillance or you were under surveillance yes. so if yes. you not even know right uh i mean we may not have enough instances to point out specifically and say that look you know in uh, all of these instances uh we we are seeing a tendency to turn into a totalitarian state but even in the absence of them right just theoretically speaking uh the more we tend to that uh argument of we have nothing to hide of course all of us may have something to hide or be embarrassed about at some point in time but more fundamentally the fact that we may all not want to be that transparent because we don't want the state to exercise that kind of control over us because i mean all of us may at some point in time with some government or the other may have disagreements and when we are subject yes. to their control we want to create checks and balances around how much control they can exercise in our lives and that's the point that i was trying to make yes and you know the thing about your book is also you've put in a lot of facts which are kind of scary i mean like you know this bit i i stopped and i read it twice how often are interception orders issued in india based on an rti filed by the software freedom law center mm-hmm. 7500 to 9000 telephone interception orders are issued by the central government each month so like that's huge uh definitely and uh of course uh, we may not know have like i said because of confidentiality restrictions very specific information regarding you know who was subject to this uh, order these orders and things like that but again mm. just the the fact that you could potentially be under the radar right for saying something may create fear in the minds of many who want to do things or say things uh, about uh, state policy or public policy Or, or criticize a certain uh, decision of, on the part of a certain government uh, to begin with, and and that fear is what uh, is a real concern here, right? 
and uh, mm-hmm. the fact that we know that there are the, this these numbers of orders is may in itself create fear in the minds of those people who specifically think that they may be uh, subjects of target right? and then when the whole uh, sort of pegasus revelations happened you had this list coming out reportedly of people who may be uh, may have been targets to uh, some sort of unauthorized surveillance then uh, you know like if if and talk about pegasus correct correct and and you have very specific uh, you know journalists being called out in 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 that instance so then obviously it would create fear in the minds of other journalists and we saw that happening yes. in the us as well that i've talked about how uh, you know uh, post the snowden revelations you had many people actually fear uh, talking about uh, things that are important that there are important or that are not consistent with yeah. what the state would want to talk about and that really affects uh, freedom of speech and expression and how journalism is carried out and how um, you know even academicians are talking about public policy right are able to hold the state accountable hmm. okay this sounds very i mean when i read it i i thought okay it's very optimistic but do you think it's really going to happen the pegasus revelations provide the indian uh, citizenry with an opportunity to strike when the iron is hot and demand that a parliamentary law is introduced to regulate surveillance you know so of course this may sound a little optimistic to some but again i think this entire book was written with the intent to be a little optimistic and <laughs> yes. i mean uh, we we've had successful uh, instances of protests in the past we saw the farm laws being repealed yes. after protests so i mean i think some degree of optimism is warranted i would think right uh, yes. and of course we have a history of protests working out in our favor but again uh, i think that we can't uh, rule out the poss- possibility of people not picking up this book and uh, being concerned about uh, their rights enough to really like uh, ask for tangible change and of course there are other things that are happening in the parliament uh, as well and there are many other concerns but it is really hoped that people generally uh, pick this up and uh, of course a committee is probing into a court a supreme court appointed committee is probing into the pegasus allegations and once we have more information on it it's possible that if the allegations are in fact true uh, right mm-hmm. then yes. and, uh, based on what the findings of the committee are it's very possible that uh, you know pe- people may be outraged if they actually find out that this is this all of this was true right and and basis that you may we, you may again see a considerable sort of a uh, public outcry or a uh, want for a law around uh, uh, surveillance but again uh, just to sort of make something clearer we yes. we have an existing data protection uh, proposed yes. law but that is not a surveillance law that is a law to regulate how uh, information is typically collected we uh, yes. I, i've tried to suggest in the book that we have we consider also introducing a law to specifically regulate how surveillance is carried out under uh, various laws that enable it and i think we st- i mean while we have a parliamentarian manish tiwari trying to push for that legislation uh, we we still haven't seen uh, that really uh, getting pushed further so it is hope that if if uh, i mean it's it's hope that these allegations are in fact not true but if they are then it is hope that uh, something is done about it and the the parliament very actively consider- and and there is but i don't think that uh privacy and surveillance have ever been as uh, as political and as 
as affecting as they have been now because you saw last year in the monsoon session there was a complete standstill in the parliament where many mps were not willing to discuss other things until pegasus was clarified by the government right so yes. kind of uh, sort of political uh, 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 you know will to talk about surveillance is unprecedented and it is hope that this continues okay okay so so that i mean i could go, go on you know talking to you about your book and about the questions that it's uh, um, it's uh, sort of it, it makes the reader think about and uh, uh, you know it's really in for, for the for the listeners is a very interesting book i mean it's it's not you you can't just flip through it because uh, it's an intense and it's dense and it's full of information and it also makes you think about a lot of things that you i mean that, that's at the back of your mind but you don't engage with perhaps often enough so go out and get what privacy means why it matters and how we can protect it by siddharth sonkar uh, so siddharth thank you very much for coming on the show oh uh, it was a pleasure and an honor to be a part of this and thanks so much for having me and hosting me bye bye this was a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast